I'm Eileen Mancera, co-chair of PE Wins Communications Committee. For those of you joining for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women's Investor Network, also known as PE Win. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PE Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly is the founding chair of PEWIN, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets under management until she let it sail in 2014. She is the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and serves on the board of Greenbrier Companies and the Grasshopper Bank and shares the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host and the founding chair of PE Win, Kelly Williams. I am so excited about my guest today, Lauren Dillard, who is a dear friend, and we have a very unique friendship, which we're going to talk about. She is currently the chief financial officer for Vista Equity Partners, and she's had a fascinating career. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Lauren. I'm so happy to be here, Kelly. This is going to be so fun. I've been looking forward to it. So let's start with some key moments early in life. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up? Yes. So I am from Dallas. That is important because I'm still a Dallas Cowboys fan. I grew up with one younger brother. Very, very important to me still to this day. He and his wife are are really important. And my niece and nephew, who are 13 and 7, are the joys of life. So grew up in Dallas, one younger brother, played every sport you can imagine, except golf, which I love now. But soccer, basketball, volleyball was outside all the time. So loved sports, was a rabid reader. Still remember my mother's Nancy Drew original collection that was in my grandparents' house, which I wish I had now. Um, and I still love to read. So those were really important pieces. I would say one of the things that formed me as I look back and I realize it now, probably even more acutely than then, was my parents were divorced when I was in middle school. It's important because a couple of things. Number one, it definitely brought my brother and I closer. Number two, my grandparents were really influential and, and really important to me. I learned so many things from them. They also loved to read. They also loved to play cards. They beat me in every card game they could play. <laughs> but they were really important to us as we grew up. Um, and it also made me realize that I was always probably going to be responsible for my economic future. And that's been really important. My mom went back to work, actually, after my parents got divorced. And, and watching her and now understanding, in hindsight, how she created a career, had a long career at a hospital, and that grit and resilience was really, really impactful to me. And I realized it now 
more than I did then. And I actually have told her recently that that was really formative for me growing up. My parents um, weren't divorced, but my mom worked when I was young and she went back to work. I think when my sister and I were like four and three or something like that, my my grandmother's raised, you know, they, they babysat us. So they were incredibly important to us. But having a mom, you know, who modeled that she was our town clerk and she worked really hard and my dad worked hard as well. But having a parent back in the 60s, which was more unusual, but having a mom who worked, it didn't even occur to me that you wouldn't work as a woman. That part of your story resonates with me, too. Yeah, it's important. And I like to think of myself like that for my niece and nephews. And, you know, my niece looks and understands that, you know, Lala works and Lala's in New York and that I try to make sure that I also instill that in them as they're growing up. Or oh, I love that you're Lala on Kel-Kel. <laughs> I became a better That's person awesome. when I became Lala. I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah. I definitely did. Me too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So was there anything about your parents' professions that influenced your choices at all? Yeah, there's two, two things. My father was a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. Both my uncles are a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. That was definitely my track in life. It's funny when you when you think you know what you want to do. I applied to law school, actually, when I was with Arthur Anderson before I joined Carlisle and had gotten into Georgetown and was planning on going. And my boyfriend at the time, that is now my husband of 20 plus years, had just finished law school. He had moved up to Washington, D.C. And he said, why do you think you want to go to law school? And it was the first time anyone actually asked me why. And I didn't have a good answer. It was kind of like, well, that's what that's what I'm going to do. That's what I've always wanted to do. That's what my dad does. So my uncles do. That's what my grandfather did. And he asking me why was was like an important minute. And it actually coincided almost perfectly where I was thinking about law school. My now husband had asked me that question. And then my manager said they were leaving and there was an opportunity for me. So I joke with my dad still, and he will roll his eyes when he listens to this, that I'm going to go to law school as my retirement gift to myself. Because I just always thought that I wanted to go and I know you were a lawyer. So that's that's one of those things. I, I like I like it. But my husband asked me that question way, way back when, when you don't even realize questions like that are important, was really quite important. Yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, so it's so funny. I always try to dissuade people from going to law school when, when, when we talk about it. Although I have to say, you know, I always thought I would be a lawyer. And I'm really, in many ways now, glad that I did go to law school because I think it gives you great problem-solving skills. And I'm glad I practiced as a lawyer for a while because really the essence of being a lawyer is is client service, problem solving and client service. And I think it's really good at the beginning of your career to learn that. It's often the case in other careers that you don't necessarily get as exposed to the client service aspect of what you're doing. And so I was really glad, particularly that I worked at Millbank Tweed, which was all about, mm. I learned my client service skills there. But I will tell you, law school, it's its not the most fun thing you could do. So we may have to have a talk when that time comes. I will, I will, seek, your, I I will seek your counsel on that like I do other things too. So, But it, okay. it is interesting, though, that you said that because, number one, I do think Arthur Anderson, which is where I started my career, and, and I specifically was in tax, it, it appealed to that same problem solving. And then if you think about tax in private equity, I was had the great fortune to work with exceptional lawyers when I was at Carlisle. 
the GC is still there. The head of fund formation is one of the most brilliant humans out there. And it, it's interesting that I gravitated towards them. They were problem solvers and they were business-minded problem solvers. But I also, to your customer service point, could not agree more. And at Arthur Anderson, you learned that. You learned that very early. I'm assuming that's all the big four, but you learned that customer service piece very early in your career. And there's, there's probably nothing more important. Problem solving and customer service are threads throughout any career in any field. Yeah, I would agree. So what was actually your very first job? I started working in high school. So I worked in my dad's law firm, which I think probably was part of the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer. I was a lifeguard, like everyone in high school does at some point in time. Um, and then I worked actually all through college. I had a little stint at one of the clothing stores. I can still hear the track that I had to listen to, the music music track that they played over and over again. And then I actually nannied after school, you know, for a while during my college time. Yeah, I did too. Same. Like as soon as I could get a work permit, my listeners know my first job was at Dairy Queen. And so recently my sister went to her uh, class reunion and for some reason, the guy who owned the Dairy Queen I worked at was there. He, he wasn't that much older than we were. And they took a selfie and sent it to me. Oh, that is fabulous. Because, I believe it's so funny. Yeah, it was fabulous. so funny. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. But anyway, um, but, but those, those experiences, I, I agree with you. I think having your own economic freedom, being able to make some decisions with your disposable income, not feeling like you're a burden on your parent, but also not beholden to your parents really, really makes a difference. And I remember, you know, I made enough money that I think at one point I, I loaned my parents the money to buy a car. Yes. I was just hoarding it all away. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny about the, the restaurant because my husband actually did that early and so did my mom. And they both have the same comments, which is everybody should work in a restaurant because you learn the service and you learn, frankly, how to treat people. And I, I, I feel the same. I think you get the same in a clothing store. It's a grind. You have to learn how to be able to, you know, serve people that are coming in. But there's a customer service aspect to those early jobs, you know, in addition to just learning how to show up on time and and work. But I, I actually think I think you you pick that up from those roles. Yeah, for sure. And I still there are moments of all of those jobs that like I still have flashbacks to. And yeah, customer service related. So when you were at R3 Anderson, were you actually working on private equity deals? Or at what point did you decide that you wanted to have your your career go in that direction? Yeah, there's always a minute of the universe working. When I started at Arthur Anderson, I was in the real estate and financial services practice in DC in Tyson's Corner. I had a few small clients, but it was right away I was put on the Carlisle engagement. So the Carlisle group was very small then. It was a small team. Arthur Anderson did all the tax and audit work. It was, you know, I didn't realize the size of it vis-a-vis private equity in Washington, D.C. That's pretty unique. It's not like I started in New York. Um, but I was put on that engagement very early. So while I had exposure to other clients in the real estate space, that was really my core client. And it became where I was at the Carlisle offices every single day and not the Arthur Anderson offices every single day. So I learned private equity from the, you know, tax organizational structure it you know appeals probably to your legal mind, um, and that's how I was exposed to private equity. I still to this day think tax is a good, is an exceptional way. I shouldn't even say good, to way to learn private equity because you're learning the legal structures, and so much of it is set up to accommodate LPs and LPs investments and the founders and the owners and 
the side-by-side investment program. So tax is such an important driver um, that it was a great entry point to, to private equity. So it was not my choice. And I loved, I have to say, I loved Arthur Anderson. I thought it was a great place to learn how to be a professional. I've said that before. And what I mean by that is show up to meetings, learn how to do your research, know how to ask questions. I think they're, they're good places to find mentors and, and sponsors and training. So it was just a good place to learn how to be a professional. And then you add to that, that we were on the Carlisle site. So we we're in the offices. So we had an extra layer of like how to learn how to behave when you were in your client's offices. And that was really important to me. And so did they approach you to join the team? So interestingly, I was at Arthur Anderson during the time of Enron. And the first CFO at Carlisle, who I still credit to bringing me over, I saw him recently, and he approached me during the Enron when it became obvious that Arthur Anderson was not going to um, be viable on a go forward. And he said, you know, he had talked to the founders and that if I wanted a role at Carlisle, I could move over. So it was very nice. It was no, it was no pressure. It was an opportunity. It alleviated great stress. When you're young, those things are super impactful to you um, because you're so earlier in your career, um, you think everything's going to end. And so, you know, he offered me that role and it happened to be also the time that I got married. So this all happened within like months in 2002. It's funny how life changes happen. So I got married in April of 2002 and Arthur Anderson uh, was no longer in existence in May 2002. And I started at Carlisle from there. Wow. And so what was your role when you joined them? So I joined reporting to three people. I reported to the original CFO, the general counsel who had the tax background and is still there, and the head of equity programs. And my role was to build out the tax department. As I mentioned, Arthur Anderson did all of Carlisle's taxes back then. The CFO rightfully said, okay, we need to figure out how to diversify this. I'd like to have in-house tax ownership, build out the tax department. And then I worked on the equity programs, which is unique to private equity I think Carlisle was early up as a pioneer to to build out that that team. Carlisle then was, of course, private. So it gave me great exposure to all of the partners at the firm, to the founders. And frankly, at a time when a firm is growing in our industry, you just get exposed to so many opportunities during that growth. And, and that's certainly, certainly, I feel fortunate for that. We will now take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we're going to learn a little bit more about Lauren's time at Carlisle. We would also like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. This is Kelly Williams, the founding chair of P.E. Wynn, and I'm here with my guest today, Lauren Dillard, the chief financial officer of Vista Equity Partners. And we are learning about her fascinating career and her transition directly into private equity. So, Lauren, you, as you said, you fairly early in your career, you joined Carlisle and had the opportunity really when it was 
relatively small compared to what it is today to get a lot of exposure to a lot of different things. Was there a particular turning point there where you felt like your career was going to go on kind of another trajectory? A career is full of a lot of little things, but there's a few kind of big moments. And if you think about where I am now, so I'm the CFO at Vista. It is, you know, the leading enterprise software investor arguably out there. I certainly think that. And it's led by a diverse founder. So if you if you kind of use that as as where I am now, and you think about the steps that got me there. Number one, I came up through Carlisle while it was growing. Um, while it was expanding internationally, I worked directly with the founder. So I had the great fortune to learn from them during an institutionalization process. And then I worked on the the Carlisle IPO. That was especially formative for me because I worked very closely with Adina Friedman, who was the CFO at the time. I worked especially closely with Glenn Youngkin, who was the CRO, of course, the founders and and all of the partners and had this exceptional team that works towards that objective. But I learned so much around team and goals and outcomes and had the great fortune of working with that group. Um, that was a formative moment because it led to me moving up to New York to be the COO and CFO of the division that Carlisle had put together, which was the investment solutions division, which was put together by three acquisitions. So a hedge fund to fund platform, a real estate fund to fund platform, and a private equity fund to fund platform that they still have. And that was formative, as you know, we can talk about it a bit later, because it really moved me more to the front-facing business side. So COOs, of course, can be internally focused, externally focused. They, they do a lot. They wear a lot of hats. I ended up running that division, which created the opportunity to work very closely with LPs. Then I moved over to run a business for Adina as the CEO of NASDAQ. I ran her investment intelligence division, which was a billion-dollar business focused on technology in the investment management space, data and technology. So you kind of pull those threads together, and they all have led me to Vista and the opportunity of Vista to be on the executive team and work, of course, closely with, with all of the enterprise software investors. So I think there is a commonality, and it has to do with, of course, learning, uh, institutionalization. I have I feel passionately about technology and data, which means I'm in the right seat in the right spot, and also just having the great fortune to work from just some exceptional leaders. Well, you know, it's interesting when I, I always talk to people about the role of a COO or if I talk to a CEO who I think needs one. And my view is always the COO is the person who keeps the trains running on time. They're often the inside person, which allows the CEO to be the outside person. But that means the COO knows everything that's going on. It's, it's such a critical job. And it's, as you say, it's, it's a job without a job description because it's pretty much everything. Yeah. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. And I know it's important to you too. You are a problem solver. You're a people problem solver. You, you help position people. You identify talent that, for whatever reason, people may not see, and I, and you, you help bring them forward. You solve complex international problems. There's a lot of just tactical blocking and tackling that you figure out. But I do agree, there is something really, really impactful of that role. Interestingly, I ended up liking the external-facing LP discussions. I think you know this, and it's important to me. I like to know. We, we all serve the same customers. We all serve the same LPs. 
and they are looking at their portfolio of hundreds of managers. And I like to hear what's on their mind. And I, I like to hear how they're thinking about the portfolio and how they're thinking about the complicated situation in the market. And this is true back then when I was in the solution spot and it's true now in my CFO spot. I want to hear what they're wrestling with because then you can help be a problem solver for your clients. There's nothing more impactful. So it's interesting. There's, there's definitely an internal, in that COO, CFO role, there's an internal, how do you keep the trains running? How do you solve problems? How do you help people? And then there's also the external facing. How do you represent your firm, your funds, your division, both internally and externally? I still remember, you know, when I, when I was part of the American bankers, you know, most powerful women and Mary Erdos, you know, talking in one of our groups and talking about after she was made head of the wealth management division and she was sort of running around and, you know, trying to get to every meeting and she was just looked very harried and somebody came in her office, a guy actually came in her office and closed the door behind him and said, look, you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off and you're making the impression that you're overwhelmed. And just saying that, like, to me, I think it's often, this is separate from the role of like a COO or CFO telling the CEO the truth because it's a risk issue. I think for women, it's often great if you have men in your life, in your career, who will decode things mm -hmm. for you, you know, who will actually come and tell you the truth like that. Say, look, this is the impression or here's what just happened in that meeting. You thought this happened, but this is actually what was going on. I think we can all do that for each other. But I also think one of the dynamics that women and men can do for each other is decode things in a non-threatening way so that communication is better. One of my biggest learnings when I took the NASDAQ job, and just to, to level set, since it's not private equity, it, it was a technology platform. I ran the investment intelligence division. So it was data that served the retail brokers. So think like standing up Robinhood, buy the data so you can see your portfolio. And then it was, a, I joined in 2019. So obviously during COVID, there was a huge rise of, of retail brokers around the world. The indices. So if you want, you know, access to less expensive exposure to the market. So think democratization, which you know I love and you love. So access to the market for people. So the NASDAQ 100, for instance, and the QQQs, which you see advertisements for all the time. And then the analytics division, which was research and technology to serve the investment management community, which, of course, I came from and we, we all are in. Well, that's a lot of product. And one of the, the lessons that I learned that I did not do very well when I joined and I got the feedback from Adina, I got the feedback from one of my SVPs who was very experienced. And they both told me the same thing in different ways, which is you're chasing shiny objects. And you need to decide what matters to this division. It was a billion dollars of revenue. What is going to matter to our investors? We need to hear from our investors. What matters to your people? You know, we did a lot of engagement surveys, but you need to figure out what matters and focus on those things. And it was very, very good advice. Um, and it's certainly good advice when you take a new role, figure out what matters and focus on it because you focus on a lot of things that don't move the needle. And in a portfolio that I was running that was as large as it was, it was easy to do that. And you want to focus on some growth, higher growth things that maybe overall, when you think about the billion dollars, aren't the existing revenue, but it's maybe where the puck is going. But that is really good advice. And it's something that everyone should take. Like, what matters? What matters to your clients? Yeah, what, yeah, I, what matters? Yeah, I agree. Because, yeah, sometimes you think, 
oh, I have to come in. I take this role. I want to swing for the fences. I want to put some big points on the board. And it really ultimately comes down to what matters and how do you make that more meaningful? Well, so I think it would be, you know, as we talk about you having made that transition into a solutions business, that's the point which maybe we should talk about, you know, how you and I got to be friends, got to know each other. Because I think it's kind of an interesting, instructive story for people. It is. There's so many good lessons learned from it. So I'm actually quite happy to share. I would say two things. And this probably impacts probably any any woman that's listening to this or any man that's listening to this has taken a new role. I moved to a new city in a new role in a new division of an organization. So use that framework. All super exciting. And, and so I'm nothing negative. There. It, it was new. And I was a little lost. And I wasn't lost within Carlisle. I had lots of support internally, but I was a little lost from the industry. And I didn't have a network of executive women. Keep in mind, I'd come from tax. So I had a tax network, but I didn't have a network of executive privately women. And I also, truthfully, like didn't really understand the solutions business. So I started asking a few people that I trusted and Kelly's name came up from all of them. But it was interesting because it was a recommendation to talk to Kelly as the pioneer, as the original kind of founder, creator of solutions. But it was also a like, well, that you compete. And so I was nervous. And, and I mean, Kelly knows this. So I and I was nervous when I reached out. And number one, you were nothing but gracious. I asked for time, which is an uncomfortable position. I went to your office, I think, with the first time we met. And mm -hmm. I sat down and I basically sought guidance and I sought guidance knowing you were the pioneer, knowing you were a competitor. Frankly, it was probably the first time I did that. And so I was unsure of what the outcome would be, but it was the best meeting and the best questions I could have asked because you've become so important to me and my career and my path and my life and ant power and art and a whole bunch of other things. But at that minute, you offered me what I needed, which was, of, of course, we compete and I will tell you the hard things in this space but I will also be here to help you, to support you. By the way, you need to know these three other people. And I think, you know, you introduced me to three other people. And by the way, why aren't you in private equity? Why aren't you in PE when? That is a network of women that will be supportive. And, and that single minute led to a bunch of threads, not only from our relationship, but in the industry. And I think about it so often, Kelly, and I try to do it. I try to pay it forward. I try to help anybody that reaches out, competitor or not. We are all just humans in this life. And we frankly are all serving the same clients anyway. So we should, should be helping each other. But it was such an important lesson to me because I was nervous. And that's how we met. Yeah. Well, you were nervous, but you were brave because a lot of people wouldn't do that. And, you know, it's funny because I think I'm like the least intimidating person in the world that people on my team would always be like, oh, my God, you know, the junior people are so intimidated by you. And I'd be like, why? But, you know, just by virtue of being the head of something or being a CEO, that that moniker itself carries some intimidation. So I was actually impressed that you reached out. And I've always taken the view with respect to competition. You know, I'm happy to have competition as long as it's fair. You know, as long as somebody's not doesn't have their thumb on the scale you know, there certainly was a period of time in our industry where there was a lot of really, really nefarious stuff going on. And, you know, I think it's good and healthy for there to be competition. And I always, I want to celebrate my competitors when they win on the merits, because I always know there's going to be a point at which 
either they can't do something or I can't do something. And I want to have someone I trust that I can refer business to. And, you know, I always had that relationship with Joanne Price and Larry Morse at Fairview. Like when they would win something, I would call and congratulate them because, you know, they're great people. And so I think more people should do that. I, I really, truly believe there's enough business for everybody as long as people are, you know, above board about things and do things in a fair way. And so I'm thrilled that you did because we've become such great friends and, you know, you're a really important person in my life too. But I, I think that women don't talk about competition a lot. It's not a topic that comes up. And I think it's something we should talk about more. And so with that, is there a point in your career that you can think of when you were particularly made aware that you were a woman? Anything that stands out in your mind? You know, I feel very fortunate that Within the walls of Carlisle and the way the founders and partners had created that environment, it was, it was not especially acute to me as I was coming up through my career. It was maybe a little more acute to me because I ran the partner you know, programs as women joined. And interestingly, one of my kind of longtime, lifelong mentors and sponsors, Karen Bechtel, who I had known prior joined Carlisle to run healthcare. And that was, that was like a really important minute to me. And Sandra Horbach, of course, who's still there running, running the buyout of funds. So I think it was, it was a cue to me as, as I developed relationships with the senior women, it became a little more obvious. It was less obvious coming up through my career. I think it became more obvious maybe as I was running, you know, businesses, certainly as I took over solutions and you would get the question around you know, diversity, it became more acute then. And then you realize you have to be the change, which is something that that I kind of picked up at that point in time and I carry with me now. And you have to be the person that other people look at and say, okay, I can go, I can go do this, which is an important message that I know you carry as well. I would say, but but growing growing up at Carlisle, interestingly, it was pretty fortunate that it it was not especially obvious to me. But certainly, you know, later, as you look around and certainly working for one of the only female CEO, CFO combinations at NASDAQ, it became a cue to me because there weren't that many of them. So you look around and you go, well, doesn't everyone have the opportunity to have your CFO and your CEO be female? And the answer is no, not actually. It's rare. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because as a, you know, as a female CEO, I think you have to be aware, to your point, you have to be the change that you seek. But at the same time, a real success is, is making things better, not just for your female employees, but for your male employees too. And I do think women have a different perspective. And I, I really do think more diversity among leadership is good, not just for women, but it's good for men too. Because I think a lot of men would like more flexibility in their career. They'd like more creativity in their career. They'd certainly like more empathy in their job. And I think women are often willing to do that and provide that. I mean, I always tell the story that within my own business, you know, we had flexible work, work arrangements and the only people that ever took advantage of them were the men. They worked from home on Mondays or Fridays because they either lived out of town or they had wives with alpha careers. And they was the guys who really appreciated having the flexibility and it made them better partners. They were more loyal. They were better husbands. They were better fathers. And to me, ultimately, that makes them a better, you know, employee. 
because you take stress out of their life. And so, yeah, I think, as you said, having the model of having female CEOs, it's not talked about enough that a female CEO can also make things better for men, not just for women. You know, as you say, I certainly feel that in my current capacity, obviously within Vista, which embraces diversity, clearly. But if you if you think about my role as CFO within finance specifically, so think about it as a microcosm, I'm acutely aware now. And again, I'm later in my career, so I sort of learned this, you know, slowly piece by piece, but I'm acutely aware I don't have kids. So what does that mean for my team members that are raising children, male or female? How do I embrace that? I have, you know, we all have aging parents. So I'm, you know, dealing with some of that. Who on my team is dealing with ailing parents? And so you just have to realize that everyone has something else going on in their life. And the best thing I think a leader can do is create an environment where it's okay to have things going on in your life. And you can share them or not share them. That's that's a personal decision. But you have to create an environment where you can thrive and you can set people up for success with all of the things going on in their life, not exclusive of the things going on in their lives. And I've learned that bit by bit over time. I, I still remember, and I think she's still at Carlisle now, one of the women that works for me, you know, saying, it is very hard for me to raise my children because you email at eight and that's when I'm putting people to sleep. And I was like, oh my goodness. It was just an awareness. It was, it was nothing more than being self-aware. And so if you think about all the learnings over time at being self-aware and how you can create an environment for people to thrive, being self-aware and, and making sure that you create an environment that is really, really important to me now. And I hope my team feels like that. Yeah, I like you. I don't have kids too. And so that's not something necessarily I'm always sensitive to. One of the things I remember one of my bosses at Credit Suisse said is, you know, particularly in the age where you can be reached all the time, 24 hours a day by email, by text, is, you know, use those out of office messages because it's not like you're not going to respond, but at least people know not to expect a response within 30 seconds because most of us do that, right? Most of us respond immediately. And so at least if you have an out of office message, people know like, okay, they're traveling, they're on vacation, they're with their family. They're going to get back to you, but it's not going to be the usual 30 seconds. And it's, you know, sometimes it's just little things like that, little techniques to to give the message because otherwise it's so stressful, right? You just feel like you can't, you can't walk away. So is there something that stands out to you as a particularly fun moment in your career? They all have something to do with a, a massive team success. And I can kind of point to a team success at Carlisle. I can point to a team success at NASDAQ. I would say using a, a Vista example, I got the finance team together as an off, at an offsite. It was the first finance offsite last year. I joined in April. The offsite was in September. So by that time, you know, we had established as a leadership team what we were going to try to accomplish. I knew what the firm needed. We've got a, a technology, no surprise there, we're an enterprise software, of course, company, but we've got a technology roadmap. And that was really, really fun. It was really fun to get together. It was fun to to get in a room together and talk about, you know, how we were going to effectuate change. And of course, then you have to execute. So it was a brief moment of fun. But all the fun times when they come to me are all around team or supporting people. I, I get a lot of joy out of watching people's success, especially if you feel like you had a little hand in it. 
So when several of the people that I sponsored made partner, like that's like joy. And, you know, when I still talk to people that, that I worked with years and years ago that have had a successful career that, you know, are flourishing and, and I made some sort of impact, those minutes bring me joy. I totally agree with you. I love when my team members reach out to me and tell me about their promotions or they're starting a new fund or they've gotten married or they've had a child. I love that they, they want to reach back and tell me. And then they also want to say how being part of CFIG affected them, which means a lot. Um, but those are really fun moments because I do have a very maternal feeling towards my team. And so I'm so proud of them when I, when I hear those bits of news. So the last thing I want to ask you before we move to my favorite lightning round is, you know, we all obviously have moments of success that, including the ones we just talked about, but all of us have periods where we have a challenge or a failure or, you know, something that didn't work out the way we wanted to. Is there anything you would point to and any lessons learned that you would share from those moments? Kelly, I have so many. It's a great question. We are all continuing to learn, but I'll share a few that I think are especially important that I still think about. I worked an overnight, an, an all-nighter, actually, in New York with Carlisle. We were working on a transaction. Flew back the next morning for a meeting with the founders, actually. They probably still to this day don't know that it was an overnighter. I was obviously low on sleep and not my best self. And I left that meeting in tears afterwards and not for anything that was said at the meeting, but it was a very good lesson learned for me that I need sleep. And I know that seems core, but there are some basics in life. I need time with my husband. I need to work out and I need sleep. And I am not my best self when I don't get sleep. So, I mean, that that is like a core lesson learned is what what do you have to do to take care of yourself so that you can be your best self for yourself and others, by the way. So I think that's a very important lesson learned. Throughout my career, communication is really important. And, you know, whether you're leading change at your team, we're going through some change with the finance team at Vista to try to deliver for our clients better. I led through change at NASDAQ as we integrated businesses. And you cannot communicate enough. The notion that, you know, in the absence of communication, people assume the worst. That is like a core lesson. It, and I think, and by the way, it's something I still like as I look, reflect on my first year at Vista or a little over first year, I could have over communicated more, whether that's town halls, whether that's at the executive committee level, whether that's directly to co-heads, MDs business partners, LPs, whoever it is, I just think you can't over-communicate, especially in these days where we get so much information. So those are two really important lessons that I've learned. I mentioned the focus on what matters and don't chase shiny objects. I think that is a, a core to kind of any role you take. And then the last one I would say is around people. You know, try to be empathetic and try to understand their situation and where they are and help get to a relationship where you are putting them in a place to be successful. And sometimes it's a lot more obvious than it is for others. That could be environmental. It could be roles and responsibility. It could be elevation. It could be augmenting the team. It could be moving them out of the role and into a different role. And I think I have a lot of lessons learned around that because at the end of the day, we're kind of all in a people business. Even if you know, you're in a technology business, it's a people business developing the technology. And I think that that aspect, like, can't have enough learnings around team aspects and making sure that you're creating an environment where people can be successful. Exactly. Well, now I'm going to move to the lightning round um, and ask you 
my first question, because I know you love to read, is what's a great book you've read or listened to recently? I, I separate my books between candy and then like business leadership books. And I do like biographies in the candy category. I read two recently that were just wonderful. Lessons in Chemistry, wonderful book and Remarkably Bright Creatures. Well, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What's what's a great movie that you just thought? So I'm not a movie. I'm not actually a movie person, but I just went to the premiere of Barbie. And it is such an interesting message and movie for the time. So I'm fascinated for other people to see it and have discussions about it. And I am wearing pink. I, uh, you are. Yeah. For those who can't see, uh, she does have a fabulous pink jacket on. And I'm going to suggest that P.E.W.N. maybe do a Barbie event because I really think it would be great and then do a panel discussion or something afterward. Um, so what's your wa- cell phone wallpaper? My niece and nephew. We just went to the beach. My- yeah, it's I mean, it's. They bring me such joy. I mean, such joy. I became yeah. a better person when they arrived. So thank you to my brother and sister-in-law. Um, but we just went to the beach over July 4th. We were all wearing red and it's my current wallpaper. Oh, that's so funny. There, My niece and nephew are always my wallpaper. Um, so if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? Honestly, I'd like to run a fund that that invests in women-backed companies. Um, I do it, as you know, on the side. It's really important to me. I back both companies and managers. And frankly, some you've given to me, so thank you. They always crush their performance. So that's especially fun to see. But I think the flow of capital into female-backed companies is critical to change. Actually, there's a little bit of that in Barbie now that I think about that. I think, honestly, that is what I would do. I think it just appeals to me for so many reasons. I think it's how you actually make an impact. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was at a conference one time and a, a man stood up and said, hey, I've got daughters, you know, how do I get them interested in this? And I said, well, look, look whatever they're interested in. Are they interested in Barbie? Are they interested in clothing? You know, they could buy the clothing or they could buy the company that makes the clothes. Like, you know, get them excited about being the owner of the company that does that and using their creativity to either make the movies, make the toy, make the clothing. Um, but yeah, I, I totally, I, I always say to people, it's awesome to have you know, friends who invest, but it's even more awesome to have friends who make you money. You know, all the girlfriends of mine that I've invested with are definitely crushing it and doing a great job. So it's a great way to, to support women because they deserve. Um, so what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Someone once told me, and it's really interesting, and I give it to other people who ask me for advice. You can ask as many people as you want for advice, but at the end of the day, you, can, you have to take only what matters to you. And what matters to you might be actually different at different points in time. And anytime anyone asks me for advice, I usually say that. And then I quickly follow it by saying, and the best advice is the same things you learned in kindergarten. Be nice to people, like be accepting, like play in the sandbox, fair, like they're kind of like core principles, work really hard. And and those are the things that honestly have taken, like they're applicable now and they will be applicable in the future. Yeah, I totally agree with you. People are, yeah, people love to give advice, but at the end of the day, you have to take what's relevant for you because so much of the advice is personal to them and it's personal to their experience. It doesn't always uh, resonate. So finally, what's one thing we don't know about you yet? I love music. I love live music. I met my husband at a concert. Both of our grandmothers were classically trained violinists and a violist in the symphony. So music's kind of like core to us. I get great joy of all sorts of live music, whether it's jazz in New York or I just went to Tanya Tucker in, in Austin. I'm not even a country <laughs> fan. 
So great joy from live music. I'm not sure everyone would know that. People who know me well know that, but I'm not sure your listeners would know that. Oh, wow. That's great. I love that. Well, you have been a fantastic guest. No surprise. I've been so looking forward to this with our crazy schedules. It's taken us a while to put this together. But thank you, Lauren, for being our guest today on Moments That Made Her. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PEWIN and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without PEWIN's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.